All right, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you at this time to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 5. For our sermon, we're going to be focusing on 5 through the end of the chapter, but just as a bit of context to, to keep some things in mind, I want to start at verse 1 for our, for our reading. And so Micah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands." And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Brothers and sisters, this, even this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we ask, oh God, that you would comfort us, 
encourage us, gird our loins in some sense, and prepare us for what it means to be your people, a holy possession. And we ask, O oh God, that even in this time together of meditating on your word, that we would hear the voice of our Savior, the one who gave his life for us and called us from death into life, out of darkness into light. We approach you confidently in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you read that passage or read along with me and, and heard and, and felt a little confused by the imagery, uh, know that, that was my initial re reaction too. Believe it or not, I don't know everything. And so when I opened this passage for the first time and I read it, I was like, where am I going to go with that? That's why I study. And that's why you should study too. Uh, because they're actually, upon study, there is a very clear point. Um, this, this passage is reminding us, and, and it's actually popping the balloon of a people who would think that when the Messiah comes, immediately, in an instant, all their problems are gone, it's glory, it's triumph, it's triumphalism. Yay, everything is better, everything is all right, immediately, right now. This passage wants to instead give us a bit of realism about what it means for this ruler from Bethlehem, which is pronounced and announced in verses 2 and 3, to come and to establish his reign and to, as it says, to shepherd and guard his flock in the strength of the Lord. What does that look like in the midst of a fallen world? Does it look like a national entity regathered? Does it look like a geopolitical force to be reckoned with? Does it look like the cultural titan that dictates all of life's facets? What does it look like? This passage, in its larger context of chapter 5, depicts the coming of Christ. Again, as we said last week, even the Jews understand to this day that this is a messianic passage. They understood it in the first century when Jesus came, when the wise men show up and Herod asks the religious leaders, where is the Messiah to be born? And they point to this passage, okay? This passage is messianic. Now, in our tradition uh, if, if, you're, if you're an evangelical or come out of an evangelical type tradition, you're, you likely haven't been raised understanding the various saving phases of the work of Christ. And what do I mean by that? Well, first, we, we have the advent of Christ. Christ came into this world. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. Okay, he came. Then we have the life of Christ where this is the preponderance of his life. It's, it's the preponderance of his life that's not even talked about in the Bible. And it's during that phase or stage of his ministry that he's earning righteousness. He's keeping the law perfectly so that 
when he takes our sin upon himself, he has something positive that is his perfect obedience that it can be applied to us. So in his active obedience in his life, he merited righteousness. And then, of course, we have his death, his crucifixion. His, we call this his passive obedience, where he actively let things happen to him. Okay? No one takes his life. He lays it down of his own accord. But nonetheless, he's, he's, he didn't move when they nailed him. He was passive in that regard. And he suffered and he died as our substitute, taking the wrath that we deserved. And he descends to the place of the dead, announces his victory even there. And of course, the resurrection is the great event of history where his victory is proclaimed. We have proof positive evidence that the Father accepts as sufficient the work of the Son. And for many of us, it kind of stops there. But his ascension is vitally important. When he goes back to the Father and when he goes to the Father and he sits down at the right hand of God, his now session, understand that what happened then is Dominion, rule, and authority became functionally his. And he now is there to intercede with the Father, having finished his priestly work of, of offering a sacrifice, and he rules as king, governing over the affairs of the world. Though, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, we don't yet see it, but that doesn't change the fact of it. Jesus is ruling over all things for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And the first blessing that he did as king was what he had promised in the upper room. What happened? Pentecost. Pentecost happened in history. The Holy Spirit was poured out and it changed the world. And so we live in a post-Pentecost world. Pentecost was the first big thing that Jesus did as king, sending his spirit. And then lastly, we look forward to his second advent, Christ that is still future tense. At the end of the age, he comes and he will judge the living and the dead. All right? So we live in the age of the Messiah's reign. What does it look like? What are you expecting? Well, this passage in four pictures gives us a snapshot image of what life during the reign of the Messiah looks like from the vantage point of God's people in that reign. Four images. And I'm reminded of the fact that as God says, usually the prophets experienced their, their message, they experienced things like this in a dreamlike state. Have you ever awakened from a dream and, and it's like, whoa, that was, that was weird. And, and you saw things in your dream that, that aren't real creatures. Uh, but, you know, you may, maybe you saw a, a crazy looking animal or, 
or, or, a, or a horse that has a rainbow-colored tongue or something weird in your dream. But in your dream, it made total sense. Understand that the prophets dreamed dreams. But these dreams and the images therein are the message from God. And these four images give us a glimpse. Now, I want to start by giving us these, this glimpse by looking at the irony of verse 5. Because there's a lot of irony in the kingdom. There's a lot of paradox, if you will, in the kingdom. I mean, Jesus tells us that whoever seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for his sake will what? Save it. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He that believeth in me shall not die. But yet we all experience physical death. Did Jesus lie to us? No. He's just referencing a vantage point that we don't often do because we're carnal. Jesus tells us that in the kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. So there's a lot of paradox in the kingdom. Things that when we approach it from the vantage point of the world and what constitutes power, what constitutes clout, what constitutes peace, don't make sense. Indeed, Jesus addresses that too, does he not? When he goes, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives peace, but my peace. So even the peace he's talking about is different than the kind of peace the world talks about. When you come into the kingdom, the first thing you learn is that there is a different worldview. When you go to Germany, they have a different way of looking at the world. There's even a slightly different way of looking at the world that they have up in Canada. When you go to Asia, it's very different. Similarly, when you become a believer and as you have your eyes opened to the message of the kingdom, you learn that there's a different way of seeing and understanding reality than what is shared in common by the kingdoms of the world. And all these kingdoms of the world, which seem so different, if you could nonetheless dig down into the roots, you would find that it's like a big kudzu weed, which shows up here and there and there, but under the surface, it's all connected. Because there's one great prince of the power of the air. And all these human systems share things in common, and the kingdom of God shares something in very different a Godward perspective. So verse five, the first bit of irony, he shall be their peace. But then I read the rest of this chapter and it practically bristles with conflict. Oh, maybe he's just talking about inner peace. Well, maybe. Or maybe he's doing what he does best as a prophet and he's already throughout this word used several witty word plays. I think in so I think in so far as verse five a becomes kind of the the linchpin, the the pivot point from the previous section. He is referencing to the security and the blessed estate we have 
in the Messiah. But then he pivots, and he's going to talk about the effect of the people of God in the world. And sometimes in the Bible, peace actually is kind of a synonym for victory. Because peace refers to the blessedness that exists after the conflict. A a clear example of this, I could use many passages, but the clearest one in my mind is way back in Judges 8. Gideon. He's the first guy the people wanted to make king, believe it or not, not Saul. They wanted Gideon to be king. And Gideon, he has that famous episode where he gets his army whittled down to how many people? 300. He has an army of 300 people and he's chasing the kings of Midian. And his army is tired because they've been chasing the kings of Midian. And he goes into town and and he goes into the town of of, of, uh, uh, Penuel and he says, hey, give us some sustenance. We need some food. We need some nourishment. And And these guys rebuff him. They're They're Jews that he's seeking to liberate, and and instead of helping him, they're like, have you already captured him that we should reward you? And what does Gideon say? He goes, "When when I come again in peace, I'm gonna then tear down your tower, which is their stronghold that they were hiding out in. Now, what he means and what he does is After I have been victorious over the kings of Midian, I'm going to come back and deal with you. So here when I come again in peace, very clearly means once I am victorious from dealing with my other enemies, and I'm resting from that, then I'm going to turn my attention to you, and you're going to be dealt with. We see a glimpse of this similarly in Romans chapter 16 where Paul says, the God of peace will soon do what? He will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he's wanting them to know that God's victory is imminent, his victory is sure, and that rolls in the peace and blessed estate after the conflict is over. Because we live in the church militant age, where we face troubles and trials of every kind, within and without. And the Lord will have a holy people. He wants his people to reflect his voice around the globe, to reflect his glory around the globe, to reflect his perfections around the globe. And to that end, he rules all things. We see then that in verse 6, that the church, this first image right here, this first of the four images, is that the church will be well guarded and well generaled. We see in verses 5 and 6, when the Assyrian singular, comes into our land. At this point, the prophet is describing a series of events that lets us know that he's not talking literally about Assyrians, but rather he's 
stepped into that mode where guys like Pharaoh, countries like Egypt, countries like Canaan, countries like Assyria, like Babylon, where, where they become sort of an embodied personification of the forces of the world that are in rebellion to God and hostile to God, which is why it talks about the land of Nimrod. Nimrod, that historical person from Genesis 10 that, that founded several of these ancient empires and kingdoms that are characterized and epitomized by hostility to God. And so when they come in to our palaces, we will rise and we will kick them out. We will kick them all the way back to Assyria. And even there, we will shepherd them with the sword. And he uses a figure of speech. You see it throughout the biblical literature in Proverbs, in the prophets multiple times, where it's seven, even eight. That, that numerical combination of seven sins, even eight, or for, for seven things, and eight. He does it here. Seven shepherds, eight princes. And he's already intertwined the two images of shepherd and ruler, so he knows we're talking about the same kind of thing. But what does that image mean? Well, it's very similar to our metaphor. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. We do the same kind of thing. So people get all mixed up when they see this. Is he talking about seven or is he talking about eight? He's talking about neither. What he's saying is seven is their, is their idea of the perfect number. So if you, have, if you have raised up seven generals, that means I have raised up enough people to sufficiently handle the problem. If I've raised up eight, what does that mean? More than enough. That's the image. The image is more than enough, more than sufficient. In other words, the church in this age will be beset by the forces of evil. And when the church is under attack, there will be kings, rulers, leaders who are subordinate to ruling, governing, exercising on behalf of the great shepherd who is listed previously, and their activities are then reflected back to and credited to the one shepherd. That's why it says, he shall deliver us, going back to that singular shepherd from Bethlehem. In other words, it's depicting the church officers that Christ has raised up to rule and reign as his under-shepherds in his place during this age. And the Lord raises up leaders to protect his people. This is a passage that Martin Luther was passionate about. In this age, one of the purposes of church officers is to guard, guide, and lead the flock. To protect and to advance. And what the Lord is telling us through his prophet is that in the church age, we can have confidence 
that the faithful shepherd will raise up leaders amongst his people who will guard and guide the flock. So take heart. The church has never entered or been in a situation where they haven't been faithfully guarded. There's always been a leader that the Lord uses to protect his people. Always. And there always will be. So take heart. Take heart. And that's important. Because we learn in the Bible that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where the people of Israel under the old covenant literally, literally forgot about God. Not metaphorically literally, literally, literally. There was no teaching. Nothing. And the only thing that connected them to the God of their fathers was their genetic code. They were pagans. And so they suffered for that. But the Lord, who has sent his son to be our great over-shepherd, has given the gift of officers to his bride. And it is their calling, it is their duty, indeed it is their delight to lead the people to make sure that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord does not depart from our eyes. So that's the first image of a well-guarded and well-generaled people. And then there are two images in verse 7 and 8, and this is where you see the paradox right here. The, the images in 7 and 8 are very similar in nature, but they're like the exact opposite sides not, not really opposite sides of a coin, very different. In verse 7, it says that the remnant of Jacob will be amongst many peoples. Frankly, verse 8 says the same thing. The remnant of Jacob will be, like many, will be amongst many peoples, amongst the nations. So right there, understand that the people of God throughout the messianic age will always be characterized as being a remnant and a remnant by definition is a small part of a previously larger whole and they will be amongst the nations not having a nation of our own amongst the nations we are scattered around kind of like salt in a, in a soup it's kind of in there, bringing flavor, bringing taste, standing out. But in verse 7, the, the metaphor is one of blessing, like dew. And over there in that part of the world where if you're not right up on a river and it doesn't rain a whole lot, those days where it's a heavy dew, they, they live for those days. It's refreshing, it ensures life continues, it's life-sustaining, it's, it's wonderful. And in the Messianic age, the people of God will, will be like that, a blessing. And one of the, you know, we modern people love to put, be down upon the, the, the influence of the church around the world, whatever in the world, and... Uh, 
There, there's a great story of in the late 1800s, it was all, that, that mindset was already hitting Europe. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was not, not really in a debate, but it was a discussion with this atheist. And, they were, and, they, and the atheist's basic question was, what good has the, has the church done? And so Charles Haddon Spurgeon starts going through the things that we can all, I mean, most hospitals bear Baptist this, Lutheran that, Methodist this, Presbyterian that. I mean, the school, he, he starts enumerating. And, and then he points to where, where are the atheist orphanages? Where are the atheist-run schools? Where are the atheist-run mercies? Where, where, where are the, where, where? And then, so then he, he, he famously, uh, he, 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 he tweaked uh, Elijah uh, from, from the Baal, the, when he's in a contest with the priests of Baal, and, and uh, he got loud, and he said, let the God who answereth with orphanage, orphanages be God. In other words, everywhere the church goes, not only do we save lives by, re- by pointing people to the Savior and, and, and leading them out of their, their sins and, and, and the wretchedness thereof, but we're like do, making things better all over the world. Nobody, for all the poo-pooing that happens, Nobody, nobody is as generous in giving to, to benevolent-type causes as evangelical Christians. Don't listen to the negativity. Don't listen. The, I understand at fundraising time, we, we, you got to give more and no more. I get that. But nobody gives like evangelical Christians. And that's good. But at the same time, or on the other hand, we have this metaphor from verse 8, and it's troublesome, isn't it? Like a lion among the flock. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Whoa. And you, you've got to understand that when Christians have spoken up in a society, uh, you know, when they put an end to being able to expose your children, we think, oh, how could anyone be opposed to that? Look at how mad people are that, that, that Roe v. Wade was overruled. When, the, when they put an end to, you know, burning the wife of a warrior who died, there were people who were mad about that. In other words, as Jesus says, people love their sin. And so when the church goes in and seeks to do something in the world, when you as a Christian even seek to do something in the world, people have a vested interest in their sin. And when you say, you can't do that, they don't react well. One of the ironic things is that we're told that that the nations will bow eventually, But as Psalm 2 makes it clear, they don't in this age. As Revelation at least 13 to 19 make clear, they don't. They're in open, hostile rebellion. 
because they love the darkness and we are a voice of the one who is there, who testifies to the fact that the day of judgment is coming, that there is a right way and a wrong way to live. And the nations hate it. Even though our weapons are not the weapons of this world, nonetheless, there is a visceral perceived threat on the part of every single tyrant. Every single tyrannical regime views the presence of the church as uniquely dangerous. Even, even up north, the prime minister of Canada has, has, made, has said that, that Christians are un-Canadian. That's, that's terrible. So, brothers and sisters, in this age, on the one hand will be a blessing, but on the other hand, the, our very presence will be odious. And especially when we seek to get others to live in accordance with God's law, they will find that as offensive and, in the language of the modern, oppressive, patriarchal, repressive. Again, that's the world. We will be a blessing, but we will also be seen as a curse. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is the next five verses, 10 through 14, in which case we learn that the principal thing that will take place in the Messianic age is that the people of God will be stripped of all the things they cling to to provide meaning, security, and they will instead be made holy. We find that troublesome. I'm born again. That's how I entered the kingdom in the first place. Yes, but you weren't sanctified in a moment. And we bring into the church our sins. We do. We just confessed it. Even Paul the apostle, he sees at work within him a law that when he wants to do what is right, there's something else tugging at him. And we struggle with idolatry. We struggle with clinging to worldly means. And the Lord wants to strip us of all this. We are filled with anxieties that we think worldly means and ways can satisfy. He speaks of stripping away horses and chariots, which are offensive weapons. He, strip, he speaks of stripping away cities and towers and walls. Those are the defensive structures. What are all the things that we put our confidence in to protect us, to project our influence, to satisfy us? He wants to strip it away. He makes a distinction between sorceries and idols. Sorceries refers to the various things that people do to seek to gain information about the future. It's knowledge-based. And people do this all the time. I saw a statistic that supposedly, I hope it's not true in here, supposedly about 20% of confessing Christians also affirm astrology. Syncretism is all over the place in the visible church. 
We want to know what's coming up. We want to know how we can avert it. How can we better our chances at being safe, at being successful? And the Lord will take away all of that. He takes away the idols, the things that we look to to give us meaning and purpose. Now, if you look at it then, in one sense, he stripped a person bare. They're weaponless. They're defenseless. He's taken away their ability, their perceived ability to have some confidence in the future. And he's taken away their idols. They're kind of just, in one sense, you would say he's left them naked on the floor. That sounds terrible. Again, that's, that's the world. Because what is, what is he doing that for? that they might look to him, that they might find in him that which is already there and always been there, that he is the one who meets their every need. He is the one who satisfies every longing. He is the one who calms every fear. Why consult the chicken bones when the one who literally holds the universe in his hands is guiding your every step? How can something created have meaning when the uncreated creator stands there with his arms open wide? And so the problem that the people of God have always had is not believing and receiving and resting in the one that on, with their lips they claim to do. And he wants his people holy. And he wants his people satisfied. But you will never be satisfied as long as you're looking to this. So he takes it away. We learn this in scripture. Judgment begins with the household of God. He is purifying his people. Because a purified people a contented people is a people that makes him look glorious. And then verse 15, at the end of the age, it says he comes and he destroys those who did not obey. Obey what? The command to repent. That's what we're told by Paul in Acts 17, 30, is that he overlooked the previous times of ignorance, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. And sadly, the world does not. And so there is, therefore, judgment. So these pictures of life in the Messianic age, as we live our lives, understand that you can be at peace because the Lord will guard his people. Understand that as we live and minister and as we proclaim his excellencies, we will bring refreshment. But also understand it will not be received as refreshing by some. Indeed, will be perceived as a threat. Understand that in this life, you will be purified by the Lord. He will sanctify you. And sanctification looks and feels painful sometimes. But the end result is one of glorious beauty as you will come out the other side resting and trusting and rejoicing in the Lord and the Lord alone. 
That, brothers and sisters, is what the prophet tells us about this age. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for what you are doing, how you are governing and guiding your people, how no force in this world can thwart your sovereign purposes, that your elect from every tribe and tongue will come to you, despite the best efforts of the principles and powers and rulers. Lord, we ask that we would be gracious when we are well-received and faithful when we are not so well-received. But in everything, Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us through and through. Grant us the grace to turn from our idols, to turn from our fleshly ways, to rejoice in you, to be satisfied in you, that we might indeed loudly and clearly proclaim your excellencies. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen.